Hello everyone, I'm Angela and welcome to this Afterlife 10K party. We are here to celebrate the 10,000 subscribers here on YouTube. I'm really, really happy um, for this. I, 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 when I started the channel, I never thought that we would um, hit 10,000 subscribers in just over a year. So I'm extremely, extremely thankful to you guys and it really means so much to me, not just for my channel, but because it really makes me acknowledge uh, the importance that the academic studies of these um, topics, which are no normally not as maybe a bit understudied in academia, you made me realize and you allow me to show other people that it is important for you and for the community and there is in fact interest in the academic study of magic, paganism, esotericism, shamanism and these related currents. So thank you so much for being here, for being part of the symposium and this party is for you guys and I have lots of special guests, which I'm going to introduce in just a second. And this party will be on afterlife, death and near-death experiences. We are still in the time of Samhain and Halloween, so I thought it'd be a good idea to address a subject matter which we haven't addressed yet on the channel. Uh, so I have here with me um, a panel of academics plus an artist and my patron community, my inner symposium. So I will now start um, introducing them uh, to you and then uh, we you will uh, interact with them um, through the live chat. You can ask questions and I can pass them on to them and uh, yeah, and we will have this uh, fun round table academic fun, of course. So we have here in the panel, Chris Deasy, Head of Religious Studies at the University of Kent. He's currently leading a module or a course uh, focused on death, afterlife and near-death experiences. We have David Wilson, a Religious Studies PhD at the University of Edinburgh and author of the book, Redefining Shamanisms. David specializes in spiritualism and Western mediumship as forms of shamanism. Then we have Giorgio Scalici, another Italian, postdoctoral researcher at Nova Univers University of Lisbon. He specializes in death rituals in Indonesian shamanistic traditions. Then we have Jeffrey Alpel, Program Manager for the Conference on Current Pagan Studies and the Co-Chair for the Pagan Studies Unit at the American Academy of Religion, Western Regional. Then we have Jennifer Alzel, which you already know from a couple of previous videos, Doctor Researcher at Durham University. You're maybe, you already know that she specializes in death rites in Druidry, but maybe you don't know that she owns a progressive funeral home. And then we have Chanel Papp, Canadian video and textile artist. Her, her research and art are focused around death images, the grotesque and labor. And then last but not least, we have Vinat, lecturer at Chedingr uh, College in India. She is a sociologist of religion and specializes in death philosophy within Indian traditions. 
So are you excited already? Because I'm, I surely am. And then we have here uh, my inner symposium, my patrons, which I uh, absolutely adore. <laughs> it is thanks to them that I can keep doing this uh, work for you guys and offer free academic university level content. And also they are a great support, even from a moral standpoint. And yeah, I absolutely adore them. So I'm really happy, happy that they're here. So I welcome Andrew, uh, Dave, um, Jenny, uh, Joel, and uh, Teresa, and Thomas, I guess. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, now you can unmute yourself when you have to speak. And also one thing before I, we start the round table, to all of you watching guys, please, if you have a question uh, as opposed to you want to interact with uh, other people in the chat box, please start your question with the word question in capital letters. This way I can immediately see that it is in fact a question and pass it on to um, the, the people in the, in the panel here in the party. So. Happy 10,000 subscribers to all of us, and let's start the roundtable. <laughs> so who wants to have its first, <laughs> who wants to start? So we are here to discuss um, the afterlife, death, and near-death experiences. Um, So who wants to start? Jenny, do you want to, to start since you also own a progressive funeral home, which people didn't know <laughs> until now? Um, yeah, okay, I can, I can start. Um, okay, yes, yeah, so um, my partner and I own a progressive funeral home in the northeast of England and by pro progressive I mean that we do weird and wonderful things like put our prices on our website and um, ask people what they want rather than tell them what they're going to have. This is the sort of thing we mean by progressive. It doesn't mean that we don't do traditional um, funerals. Um, on the subject of afterlife beliefs, I um, carried out a survey um online with druids and other pagans asking about um funerals funerary tradition and afterlife beliefs and um expected to get a handful of responses as people tend to when they're doing survey work for phds and i ended up with um 1300 responses which means i think i am now sitting on the biggest resource in the world to do with paganism and death generally so if anybody has any questions about that i'm happy to, to try so what is what what is um shortly um if that is possible to <laughs> um to make it short but um, what 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 do pagans believe what do pagans believe um comes after life okay if you were to ask christians believe it or not you would get a very wide range of responses Asking pagans gets you a much, much wider range of responses. Than I'm not, Christians. I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> so, like, not um, at all. 
I would say, um, first of all, which might be the biggest surprise, there are pagans who don't believe that there is any life after death. And they are not a tiny minority. They are a minority, but they're not in any way a tiny minority. And I think that needs saying. So for those pagans, very often they see the legacy, the, the afterlife survival is in what goes back into nature. So um, what, what did come out very strongly is that pagans like the idea of natural burial, which is quite a big thing in the UK. And the idea that the elements that make them up go back into the universe and that life after death for them is understood in those terms and in what they leave behind them, whether that be their children or whether that be what they managed to do while they were alive. After that, they, the two biggest beliefs are in reincarnation of some kind or another. Um, and what tends to be the big difference really between the belief in reincarnation in paganism and the belief in um, the Dharmic religions such as Hinduism is that there isn't necessarily an end point. Some pagans believe that there's an end point and that there is some sort of reunification with the universe, however they understand that. But for a lot, because the world is not something to be escaped from, it's something that's divine in its own right, that reincarnation may very well continue indefinitely. You're not trying to get somewhere through it. And the other common belief is in some form of other world, whether that be described in terms of the Summerlands or uh, Anun or an ancestral world, the idea that there is a world sort of parallel to but different to this one um, in which there, it's possible to make some form of contact with ancestors. But that is obviously a huge simplification. Yeah, thank you for thank you for that, Jennifer. It's actually pretty interesting to see um, the, the results from your survey, which I know was a massive survey. Um, yeah, and I guess it, it may also depend on the location. Um, I wonder whether pagans from a different country may have different beliefs when it comes to the afterlife, because from my I haven't done a survey. So this is kind of anecdotal from my field work, but I'd say that the majority of pagans that I have encountered believe in reincarnation. Um, I, I don't think that I've met, that I've ever met a pagan who doesn't believe, who believes that there is nothing at all um, after this life, but yeah, of course, I would need to carry on, carry out a survey to be, to have, you know, like solid data to, to say that. Anyone else wants to join in when it comes to mm. pagan beliefs? Um, Angela, if I may, um, first of all, Jennifer, I'm so glad to see this work continuing because I had seen you at AAR, I think in Boston about two years ago. Um, it, was it was actually San Diego last year. Was it San Diego? Yeah. I didn't go to last year's, so I've seen you somewhere present. At any rate, you were doing the Druid things, which were really fascinating. Um, this came up recently, and, and it reminds me, it, now I'm on the West Coast of the United States, and, and paganisms and, and witchcrafts in the United States are regional. I'm sure they are everywhere. Um, it's not a big homogenous whole. Surprise, surprise, it's the U.S. Um, but one of the things that came up in talking about reincarnation um, and it kind of reminds me, and there's, I don't have an academic piece of this, but I've seen this in various um, people speaking of these sorts of beliefs, 
is that we're far more, witches and pagans seem to be far more involved with now, this life right here, and not worrying so much about um, some life that comes after, which I think is interesting because, because Jennifer, you just said that the whole idea of that there are more lives to come and about being here is what it's about. We don't escape the world. Um, we're embedded in it. We're part of nature. We're a part of this whole thing. And that may be part of it. You know, the work you're going to do when you're dead, whatever work that might be, and work may be the wrong word, that happens when you're dead. You'll get there. Um, we all will. <laughs> it's not like we have a choice. But, but the work that we're doing here and now is the important thing. Um, so I just, just kind of writing on what you were saying, it, it brought up some re very recent discussions uh, that I've been having. So very cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that, Jeffrey. And I also want to thank um, Richard. Is it Richard? Yeah, Richard Burke. Thank you so much for your donation. It really means a lot for, for me and the, the channel. <laughs> So is there anyone that uh, wants to uh, comment or ask questions mm -hmm. about pagan beliefs on the afterlife specifically? Uh, may I uh, say something, Angela? Yes. On, yeah. on reincarnation. Okay, I come from a nation where we have different religions and this reincarnation is the central death belief to Hinduism, Sikhism, and uh, Buddhism. Okay, so in Hinduism precisely, our entire life is governed in a way that when we die, we are going to come back to this earth in a new body. And reincarnation would be getting a human body again. But there is a possibility that we also get into some animal form. That is transmigration. So we have this concept of uh, karma, which is retribution. So if we want a better next life, uh, we are supposed to follow a pursuit uh, while living this present life, which involves lot, lot many things about uh, do's and don'ts, you know. So in every aspect of our life, we are supposed to be alert that, okay, this can be harmful after we die and it could lead to some, you know, some kind of rebirth in the lower realm. So as you know, the pag pagans also believe as it has been discussed. So the central idea is that there is one universe and all of us came from that. And there is some element of consciousness within this uh, uh, material body, which transmigrates or which reincarnates. And it, this present life could be uh, one of those millions of lives that we might have had uh, throughout this, I mean, uh, the, there is no end to the cycle as such, but yes, there is something called co concept of moksha, moksha or nirvana in Buddhism. Moksha, we use the term in Hinduism and uh, in Sikhism, they call it reaching Satchakhand. So it is the realm of supreme power, uh, which is uh, from where we all generated. So once we all rectify our karmas, there is a possibility that we go back to that supreme power. And then we are out from this cycle of birth, birth and death. So the, this is the central aspect of most of the religious beliefs in my country. Thank you. Thank you. That's really interesting, Vinat. <laughs> and what about you, David? I can see David Wilson. 
Um, I know that you studied spiritualism and its relation to shamanism. So do you want to um, come in and say something about beliefs in afterlife or, yeah? Yeah, I can do. Um, I mean, the fundamental belief in spiritualism is that you know, when we die, the consciousness, the soul, the spirit, whatever you want to call it, continues so that you are essentially the same person. You don't become someone different, but you have left behind this physical form. And the other thing, of course, that mediumship is focused on is using the possibility of communication between people in spirit and people in this physical material plane as a way of demonstrating that continuing existence, that continuing personality. And you get, certainly in the traditional uh, spiritualist literature, there's this idea that you work your way through a series of environments and spirit as you progress as an individual spirit. So traditionally there are seven different levels, planes, environments, dimensions, call them what you will, that uh, build on top of this world and gradually you work your way through them as you develop as an individual. And I was interested in listening to the discussion about um, reincarnation because that's a very hotly contested subject in spiritualism. The traditional position within spiritualism, certainly uh, in Britain, is that reincarnation does not happen. But you get a lot of individual spiritualists who will personally have some interest in or will subscribe to some version of reincarnation. When you look at um, traditions like uh, Spiritism in South America, which was based on the writings of Alan Kardec, the French medium, and also at the Theosophical tradition, you find that reincarnation is very much more prominent as a taught doctrine. Um, and it, that traditionally has been one of the dividing lines between spiritualism and the Theosophical and Spiritist versions, if you like. But it's interesting that it remains a very contested subject within spiritualism as to whether we actually come back into this world or not. That's not like I say, the traditional view of um, certainly British spiritualism is that we do not. Mm. Could, I, could I just come back in on there very briefly as well on this, this idea of um, afterlife within Druidry, which is my major area of study. Um, reincarnation, again, is probably the most common belief, but a huge, uh, a really central concern is with ancestors and with honouring of the ancestors. Yeah. And this particularly raises issues, obviously, around reincarnation, because if people are reincarnated, then what is it that is existing as an ancestor? Exactly. Yes, and this is one of the things that gets pointed out. You know, if, if somebody's been reincarnated, you're not then going to be able to communicate with them as a spirit in some other place than this well, one. Well, and the thing also, is, only if you take the traditional view that you are composed of a body and a soul. And within Druidry, there is very often the idea, and within paganism more, more widely, but specifically within Druidry, there is the idea that you may actually be composed of more than that. And a teaching that you hear very often in Druidry is the three cauldrons. And hmm. the idea is that there are actually more than two aspects. And the physical aspect returns to the earth, but actually there is more than one aspect that survives. So there, it is it is in fact possible to reincarnate and for something to exist in an ancestral realm as well. Yeah, it's, I suppose simplistically, 
spiritualism adhered to the traditional view that you are a physical body and a spirit. But there is a little bit more to it than that, because as we spend our time in this world and we build up a sort of conscious uh, self-image, we are, if you like, weaving what you might call a spiritual body. So that when you're in spirit, um, you are still projecting and creating um, a body, that, a spiritual body, if you like. Um, it's a finer material, it's not made of the stuff in this physical realm, but it, it, it does exist and as a kind of mental projection and self-presentation. So you do still have an appearance and a form, although it's not made of the same stuff as the, you know, the physical stuff of this world. So it is a little bit more than just body and soul. Um, but, uh, but certainly, the, like I say, the traditional spiritualist view is that once you've left this world behind, you can communicate that you're not going to come back personally. There is, uh, there is a question from the chat um, from uh, Nick Tillman. Hi, Nick. <laughs> uh, I believe he's asking uh, Jennifer. Um, he, uh, Nick is asking, uh, have we seen pagan ideas on the afterlife shift as a response or reaction to the concepts of Christianity? Oh, that was interesting. Um, there is a lot of conscious rejection of the concepts of Christianity. And in specifically, there is quite a lot of rejection within paganism to the concept of judgment or divine judgment, I think. And this is also, uh, again, the big difference between the concept of reincarnation in, uh, in paganism and the concept of reincarnation in the Dharmic religions. Um, I, I hear a lot of pagans talking about karma but I don't hear them talking about karma, particularly with regard to reincarnation. And that is really interesting. And the connection that in Hinduism is absolutely integral between karma and dharma and moksha is, is not there. So yeah, it's, it, it, it's a really interesting one. Um, there are pagans that talk about going to a spiritual realm after death. And I suppose that whether you call that heaven or not is purely a case of semantics. But you don't hear a lot of talk about something else that judges you. Um, so that, that it may well be that there are, is some sort of consequence for how you behave. But I would think how most pagans would understand that would be much closer to what you see in spiritualism which is that where you go is where you need to be in order to progress rather than that something has judged you and put you in a particular place. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but um, yeah, there is, there is certainly a bit of a kickback, I think. Yeah, I think, I think that it does answer the question. Nick, let us know if it does. Meanwhile, Eric, hi, <laughs> I just saw that you entered uh, the round table. It's nice to see you here. Um, what about you, Giorgio? Um, what about the concepts of afterlife and that that you have studied in Indonesia? It's, it's totally different, actually. It's when I was listening, it was me like, okay, it's, totally, it's the opposite almost. In the community that I work with, the one of Morawali, like, there is no reincarnation because it will be seen as like gain. Like, seriously, <laughs> I don't want to do it again. Because there is all this idea that life is suffering. They have this very negative view that life is suffering. So afterlife is a reward. 
I'm going to die. I'm going to be finally be happy. So not not be not being alive is a reward in and of itself. <laughs> yes, because there's a they believe they are like they live in a kind of parts like they live in misery. They believe that they live in misery because us from the West took all their wealth. So we live in the heaven. So for them, when we die, it's no heaven for us because we already have are in our heaven. Well, like they're suffering now, so they deserve to go to a heaven when they die. And the interesting thing is that you don't, if you're one, you don't actually die, you change place because they divided the world in the human world and the dream slash afterlife slash mythical time world, spirit world. So when you die, your soul does move from the human side to the mythical time. It's a physical place. It's actually a physical place. Actually, where we live is the afterlife for them. So they believe that when they die, they move here and they come back to a time when everything was possible and everything was full of power and everything was perfect. Is this, then, is this across uh, Indonesian traditions or? No, is no, this, this is specific within my community in the uh, Wana. Is the how they is strongly related to their social status in the area. It, it's totally different and it, it's changed a lot in how they experience life. I think if you have a nice life, it's easier to feel like, okay, I want to do it again. But they believe like, I don't want to leave it again. <laughs> like once is enough for me. It's very interesting. Actually, their life is not so bad, honestly. But mythologically, this is their point of view. They see that everybody is doing better than them. So they hope in the afterlife. Oh, that's they interesting. It almost brings up the question of what's the relationship between a, a group of people's beliefs in the afterlife and how they've been colonized. So I wonder what the relationship would be there. Yes, there is, because the thing is, there's a lot of mix. Jenny was talking about this final judgment, and they have it, but it's clearly something that arrived later because. I believe there is a man with a book with all the good and bad people in the afterlife, but like they don't know how to read, how to write. So it's clearly like something arrived later. Uh, there's these things. And then there's all the relationship with the colonizer. Like since the arrival of the uh, Indian colonizer in Indonesia, there have been slaves. So like they have at least 1,000 years of slavery history. And they see people arrive and like control them, like using violence against them. So like, okay, we are doing very badly now, but one day we're going to do better. And we're doing badly now because the people from outside took all our power. It's very clear. It's their history, it shaped their afterlife. So they, they don't live the moment, they live the future. It is also the past. This is too complex, but their future is also the past. I believe that Andrew, uh, one of my, uh, one of the members of the Inner Symposium, has a question. Andrew, can do you yeah. want to step in? Yep, 
thanks. Um, I wonder about the concept of eternity, which is a pretty much an Abrahamic faith type thing where you've got linear time, but uh, in a lot of other societies, it's more cyclical. Um, just sort of generally, um, is there a concept where time is completely different in the, the afterworld? Anyway, that's generally my question. It's to me. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I was it was general, but yes, um because yeah. um the shamanistic point of view would be much you know very interesting, I think. The idea is like Sikika is a good point. The idea was is that the time and the space was one. Then at a certain point split. And the time and space split. For them, space is more important than time. So on this side, when the West, more or less, saw the afterlife, the dream time, the mythological time, space, and this is their life. One day in the future, they will go back together. And the initial purity, the initial density is like the Big Bang. It's very interesting because the big bang said this was all together it's explode is losing like power like uh, the thing that keeps everything together is expanding but one day it's going to go back to one with the one is the same it's expanding they're losing power but one day is going to back to one and the mythical time and the historical time are going to back together so it's, it's cyclical in some way it's also, they're both together, they're just kind of parallel. Shamans can jump between the two. You, normal people don't. They're parallel. Is this is answering your question? Sorry, because it's complex. Yes, yeah, that, actually, okay. well, <laughs> more than I hoped, actually. That's, that's <laughs> very much reminiscent of, of Sir Roger Penrose's ideas. But um, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, we also have a couple of questions from the from the chat. Uh, so Nelson is asking: Are there pagan traditions where marriage is retained or continued in afterlife? Any one of you wants to try and answer this question? I have limited. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not something I've done a particular um, study of, but I do know. Now, I have spoken to pagans who um, have said that when people marry, for want of a better word, or hand fasting, can be for um, a year and a day. So with the, the option of, you know, if it's not what they both want at the end of a year, they separate and there's, there's no sort of comeback, there's no blame there. Or it can be for life, or it can be across lifetimes. So the idea that they will continue to meet and they will continue to be together in future incarnations. And there are pagans who undergo hand fasting ceremonies that are intended to last across lifetimes. So it's a thing that exists, yes, but I, I couldn't tell you a huge amount about it. Yeah, I also have the same experience um, in, in Italy with the pagan community in Italy. And it is very common that um, yeah, I have met a few pagans who actually uh, wanted to have a hand fasting, which would last for, you know, <laughs> the, the future lives as well. 
um, I'm not sure whether Nelson meant, you know, um, pagan marriages retained in an afterlife, like in the Summerland, um, or whether, yeah, because um, Nelson, when it comes to marriage and weddings, um, pagans normally do hand fastings and they can last, as uh, Jenny was saying, for a year or for a life or for even future lives. Um, but yeah, I don't have any uh, data or knowledge regarding whether marriage marriages would kind of, um, I don't know, do, do you know something about a concept of afterlife? Of course, it also depends on the kind of paganism, because there are forms of paganism like um, more traditional reconstructionist form of paganism, which tend to have different ideas of what the afterlife looks like. So yeah, I guess it, we are maybe referring mostly to the neo-pagans, so the contemporary kind of pagans who are not following um, a specific reconstructed tradition, like from the Roman or the Norse tradition or the um, Hellenic tradition. And some may argue that even the Indian traditions like the, uh, the Darshana may be considered uh, as pagan. Hi, Angela, can I just, I'll just jump in quickly. Um, <clears throat> As far as spiritualism, um, I've also spent quite a lot of time looking at Evenki shamanism in Siberia, which is the tradition where we get the word shaman from. And I find in both spiritualism and in Evenki shamanism, there's not really been any great expectation that marriages necessarily continue beyond this life. I know in spiritualism, the idea is that if people want to be together, then that, that relationship can continue. But the mere fact that people have been married or partnered or whatever in this life doesn't necessarily count for anything once this life is over. Uh, and also with Evenki shamanism as well, it was the same sort of thing. You know, you whatever relationships have existed in this world, if, if people want to continue them uh, once this life is over, then they can do, but there's certainly no obligation. Mm. Yeah, thank you for um, telling us that, uh, David. Uh, also, there is another question from Red Falcon. Um, what have you heard about going to the blue light and not the white light, which brings you back here? I, I guess the question is whether you've heard about the blue light as opposed to the white light, which brings you back to uh, our word, if I'm interpreting the question correctly. When I was uh, studying my master's, which is a fair while ago now, I did do quite a lot looking into near-death experiences um, and the various arguments around them. And I have to say that is a new one on me. That is not something I've come across before. So I've heard a lot about, obviously, experiences of light and beings of light. And obviously by definition kind of the people whose reports we have are the people that came back. Um, I haven't, I am not aware of any cases where people have been told that if they go towards a blue light, they won't come back. There, there, there tends not to be, and the, the cases that I've looked at, there tends not to be a huge element of choice. Uh, people are either told to go back 
Um, there's interestingly, there's a distinction here between Western and Indian cases. There was one study done looking at the differences between Indian and um, Western near-death experiences. And in Indian cases, people were far more likely to be told that there was an error and that it wasn't them that was supposed to be there, it was somebody else. Whereas in uh, Western cases, they were more likely to be told that they still had something to do and so they had to go back. But in both cases, there isn't much choice involved, you're told to go back. Um, there may be something, I mean, this was a good few years ago, there may have been something that's come up since then, but that's, that's my experience. Eric, do you want to jump in and um, tell us what you just wrote in the chat? Seems interesting, if you want to, if you don't. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, it appears from what I've read of ancient Egypt, Egyptian paganism, that not only were people considered to still be married after they died, but relationships such as masters and slaves and pharaohs and subjects were also uh, kept in the afterlife, which could be quite nasty because sometimes uh, slaves were even killed and buried with their masters so that they can serve them in the afterlife. Yeah, yeah I guess the, um, the Egyptian um, case is pretty different from, I guess, the, the, the normal, the normal, the average pagan uh, view of the afterlife. There's actually very that the only evidence that there is for human sacrifice in ancient Egypt is very, very early. Um, and it, it's not uncontested. But later on, certainly they were using Shakti figures rather than sacrifices. So the, the sacrificial element was something that didn't last very long. But in, in the case in point, what I was saying earlier about there being more than one element to the human psyche, the Egyptians are the absolute case in point there. You have the car, the bar, um, and the ankh, which are all different elements of the personality, and all of them have different afterlife destinations. Um, so the car hangs around the tomb and is given mortuary offerings, whereas the bar is what goes on and hopefully enters the duat as time goes on. So again, you have this idea that there is more than one of what we in the West would call a soul. Yeah. Chris, are you still with us? Yeah, I certainly am. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want I to? Actually, I was actually thinking, yeah, 19th century, so, um, The Gates Ajar, the Elizabeth uh, Stuart Phelps novel, which is all about this idea that the next life is going to be a very social continuation of this life with um, people, you know, relatives sitting around the piano, uh, having lunch, the idea that it's very communal and an extension of the next life. And I think, you know, also mixing in from a Christian perspective, the Christian social movement of the 19th century, this sort of idea that the next life is going to be a better version of anything that we could um, expect to experience now. And, you know, you've got antecedents for that way back in the early church with people like um, Irenaeus, you know, sort of the idea of there being recompensation, justice in the next world, which will be a better earth. So the afterlife, I was fascinated by what was said earlier, that in many cases you see this in reincarnation as well, but the idea that it's as much about this life uh, and the idea that this life in a more fulfilled sense than about the afterlife per se, you'll find apart from, I guess, Swedenborg really, what, what 17th or so century, you don't really have that much very specific 
information about what the next life is going to look like it's more about what it is in this life that we want to hold on to which is why you've got all these debates about the resurrection of the body the immortality of the soul it's it's about our personhood continuing whether in an embodied or a disembodied form but it's some essence of ourselves that we don't want to let go of that makes the, the afterlife so necessary in terms of justice and uh, the idea that we that, that we must matter and our lives are too truncated at the moment to imagine that we can just cease to be when our earthly life comes to an end that, thank you chris that was very interesting and also we need to go back to what Giorgio was saying in the chat next but there is a question i think for vinat um the question is um was there a practice in india when the wife of the deceased was sacrificed on the funeral pyre with their husband yes it was there uh, it was in uh, um, see hinduism has evolved in phases so it was the time when uh, there is uh, this text called smriti texts were in practice these texts were interpreted by uh, or written by some uh, you know people brahmins and rishis who could uh, i mean uh, so when they wrote hindu code of conduct so it was uh, you know burning of this um, uh, wife with the husband was more of a patriarchal idea and not nothing uh, about afterlife per se it wasn't that uh, that this lady is going to be uh, the companion for many lives the idea was that the lady doesn't have an identity without a man so if the man has gone so it is better that she is uh, i mean burned along with with the man husband uh, for that matter and because the rules for widows were very very strict so widowhood was even difficult to bear so death was an easier alternative to being a widow so that was the rational behind that and it wasn't anything to do with afterlife for that matter it was just that the life of the man is over so women uh, the wife who's left behind has no one to look after i mean look as her master or somebody to serve so it's better she also ends her life along with uh, the husband so that was the ritual however then it is banned now and these days <laughs> it, it doesn't happen like that that that's good <laughs> i guess <laughs> <laughs> so it it was patriarchy and not after life <laughs> yeah thank you vinat georgia do you want to step in and uh talk about what you were uh mentioning in the chat about the souls oh yes um possibly we're going to have a little guest possible i don't know there's my son playing around um yes the community that i work with They believe in three souls. One is in the blood, one is in the shadow, and one is in the head. It's a kind of a dream agent. And this is a very common belief among shamanic culture that what we see in dream is what our soul sees while, while it travels around when we sleep. And for them, it's also the same soul that goes in the afterlife. So, and being part of your being means that you don't die this community they like is interesting because for them you die your body dies or fine but for the community you die after like three weeks after the community says that you can go in the afterlife 
and they treat you as you're being still alive. They bring gifts, they talk to you. Uh, you are still there. Even if your corpse is dead, fine. Your soul is there and you are still alive for the community. So it's forbidden to cry because there's no reason to cry for somebody who's still alive. You have to wait for the end of the ritual. So, yeah, I, I, re I recall, I, I recall uh, you at a conference, it may have been the BSR conference uh, that you were showing a few photos from a funeral rituals. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why, but your explanation just <laughs> reminded me of that uh, scene. <laughs> the difference between being alive and being dead is not always so clear. It's very clear for Westerners, like, oh, yeah, your heart stopped beating, you're dead, more or less, because on the medical side, it's become very complex. But for them, it's not your body that says when you're dead or alive. It's your soul that is actually just changed status. It's a completely different point of view on living and dying. Yeah, that is fascinating. And it is, yeah, I find it interesting to see how across different countries and how in different parts of the world and different cultures, the conceptualization of death and the afterlife is rooted in how they view human beings how they conceptualize our very presence, our life. Um, their way of seeing how we live determines how we die and what happens after, uh, after we die, if anything happens. <laughs> On that note, I wanted to ask uh, Chanel to talk about uh, her art concerning death and the macabre. Chanel? <laughs> yes. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, listening to everyone talk, it just um, makes me think about where I live currently. Um, I will get to art sort of in this, but um, I, I live in uh, Canada, southern part of Alberta. And um, the history here isn't like as far as buildings and graveyards are, is very, very short. Like, um, like a hundred years, maybe. And um, so like the, the whole like thing with faith and the afterlife is kind of like something no one ever talks about. Like, like funeral stuff is non-existent. And the way that people talk about the afterlife, basically non-existent. Like we're basically erasing any sort of death ritual. Like there is cremations. We do have a green uh, graveyard in the city, which was just approved last year, but it's all put under, this is environmentalism. This is not the closer connection to the earth. This has nothing to do with pagan beliefs. And actually in Lethbridge, they also have a real like, like I had talked about this yesterday actually in another uh, talk because I did a whole documentary on the satanic panic in North America, but just specifically in my hometown. And so it's called Fire Ravages Satan House, but I'm just, uh, yeah, so this is just to prove sort of like the sort of strangeness here where um, they have like this sort of like polarizing effect, but there's no real long history with these beliefs because there's also the First Nations beliefs and here. So it's kind of still the Wild West. 
Um, as far as here goes, like I, and my work is because I want people to talk about these things more because they are present. And so with the work I make, I try and make textile based labor intensive artwork that's about morbid subject matters, like a whole human skeleton with organs and that sort of thing. So it's soft and approachable. And most people never see any sort of anatomical displays here because there's no like medical museums or anything like that. It's sort of like to get people to even talk about death or anything difficult, you have to take sort of a soft approach. Whereas for me, I want to talk about this stuff all the time, but it's hard because people don't want to and you'll be, no, 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 no. We don't talk about that. So, so with my work, I just try and present the difficult for people. That's really interesting to me because um, obviously my, my funeral director hat on, we do quite a bit with green burials, which is sort of taking off a bit. I think there's about 250. There may be more than that now sites in Britain. And this, this sort of putting it into a box and saying, well, it's environmentalism, but it has nothing to do with the connection to the earth is really strange to me in terms of how you can separate those things. I know, obviously, I, I come at it with a pagan perspective, but my supervisor did a study specifically on a Church of England green burial site in Cambridgeshire and the reasons that people were, taught, were, were choosing that. And to my you know, surprise, the language that Christians and pagans use when they talk about green burial is virtually identical. The only difference that you might get is that pagans very often um, conceptualise the earth herself as a goddess so it's giving back to the goddess whereas that's not language that Christians use obviously but they do talk about giving back so there is this idea of the body as a gift and this reciprocity and I suppose going back to Marcel Mauss and gift, gift theory there is this idea that the body is the ultimate uh, inalienable gift that you can give and that language seems to be coming out of people regardless really of whether they are christians or pagans or nothing in particular there does seem to be this idea of green burial as being in relationship and gift giving with the earth mm. my, yeah that's oh sorry you were saying no, okay. um my sort of a, a thing about it is that uh, it's very capitalistic like in a way people are like okay since the green funeral doesn't require me to get embalmed and I'm buried in a shroud, it should be a cheaper funeral and, uh, or I'm going to get cremated is sort of how people talk about it. They don't necessarily talk about it as giving a gift back to the earth and think about it even in a, like that scientific sort of way. The way people talk about it as like, uh, I could, they, they just, you know, it's over. It doesn't matter anymore. I don't know. Does it sound awful? But that's the sort of language around death that I'm here. People don't talk about it. They just go, oh, you could throw me in a ditch or you could cremate me. Or like, it doesn't matter. Like the, like the afterlife. Not saying that nobody has any faith-based beliefs, but I think like the whole um, like funeral and like the um, ritual around death is pretty much non-existent for most people around here like they will have a few they will have like someone will die and then they will wait months to have like a in memoriam if they have one at all and that's like even more like that with covid because that people aren't doing 
the connection like so if you're not doing the ritual what is the faith part of, of it like is it it's like they're more concerned about property and wealth and passing that on than the spiritual aspect of it so yeah. for me I, I guess with my work i try and just maybe have a conversation in any direction around death yeah, I think that even uh, in our Western society, perhaps we need to talk more about that and have, you know, I guess an open conversation about it. Meanwhile, there is, thank you, Chanel, for your uh, intervention. There is a, a question from Helena um, asking about the spiritism movement in France that started with Alan Kardec. Uh, is there any one of you who wants to say anything about the spiritism movement? I can maybe say a little bit. It's not my specialism, but um, Alan Kardec was a very famous um, 19th century French um, spiritualist and medium. Um, and he became particularly influential through his uh, written works rather than through in-person demonstrations all the time. But what was interesting about that is that his works have become extremely influential in South America, in Brazil particularly. Um, and it has given rise to almost a kind of offshoot of spiritualism, um, which tends to be, you know, people call it uh, spiritism in uh, South America. Um, and it's very much focused upon uh, the doctrines of reincarnation and spiritual healing. Those, you know, those are very, two very prominent aspects of spiritism. Um, so it, the healing is also very prominent in Anglo-American spiritualism, um, but not so much the reincarnation. But it, it's interesting that you do get um, one or two examples through the history of spiritualism where our medium becomes particularly prominent and almost becomes the uh, catalyst for a whole new tradition to be created. Thank you, David. There is also a question in the chat from my best friend. Hi, Cipriano. <laughs> I have to translate it because it's from, um, it's written in Italian. Um, so death as an entity, um, spirits and gods of death, um, packs and um, attempts to manipulate death. Have you ever found any of these themes in the traditions, across the traditions you have studied? So death as an entity, um, spirits and gods of death, and packs and um, attempts to manipulate death. In within druidry, um, death is sometimes um, I wouldn't say actually so much. We that there are the, the deities that are addressed in Druidry are very often the Celtic and very often actually uh, mythological figures from the Mabinogi, which is a medieval Welsh document. And within that, there is a character called Oron, who is the Lord of Anun, which is sort of an underworld. And he has also been characterized in later medieval legend as Gwynap Neath, um, sometimes the king of the fairies and sometimes the king of the underworld. And he is very often associated with death within Druidry. Um, and what you, you sometimes get, particularly around Samhain, is you will get ritual drama where people will be, within a ritual setting, um, will confront death. 
and will sometimes have some sort of dialogue with death. And um, the other figure that is sometimes um, associated with that is the Kyriak, who is, the, the name means the veiled one, and she is represented usually as an old woman. Um, and the legends about her are mainly from Scotland and Ireland, and she is a landscaper in that she's seen as a sort of giant figure that is associated with winter and with the shaping of the land. But she also very often is brought into Samhain ritual. Um, and again, it's a case of confronting fear and coming to terms with. Um, and um, people are very often asked to give things that they want to be rid of, um, whether it's attitudes or situations. They are asked to um, give these things into a cauldron that is carried around by the Kyriak, and then they are burnt as part of the ritual. So, yes, figures connected with death. Uh, a lot of pagans that I know have figures, particularly at this time of year, that represent death in some way on their altars. Uh, what I haven't come across is um, within this, the, and again, I particularly study Druidry, um, so I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I haven't come across anything that I would say is an attempt to manipulate death. Um, within the, the studies that I've, um, within the, the cultures that I've looked at, the, the, the emphasis is very much on death being a part, a normal part of everyday life. And um, the enmity, I mean, within Christianity, the rhetoric is very much about triumphing over death and conquering death, and therefore death being seen as an enemy. And that rhetoric is not there in paganism. So death is not necessarily seen as an unfriendly force. Mm. Don't know if anyone has anything to add to that. Yeah, any, thank you, Jenny. Um... Uh, Anyone I'll, else wants to... Yeah, I'll talk about the death god in Hinduism. So we have this uh, god named as Yama. So this Lord Yama is a giant kind of uh, uh, personality. So when the uh, when somebody dies, so Yama sends his two agents to pull the soul out of the body. And, you know, now right from here, the, uh, this, the, the karma starts working. So if you have been a good person, good now goodness is defined in Hinduism in its own way. So if you have lived a life to those tenants, then the, these two agents will be very kind and, you know, they won't trouble much. But then if it had been the other way around, it is going to be very, very painful. And then the journey from where, you know, the, uh, from the moment of death till the soul reaches the abode of Yama, it's full of torments, it's full of... Uh, like it's written in our text that there is going to be pain, there is going to be uh, harsh rivers to be crossed and there'll be crocodiles who'll chase you and stuff like that. So what happens is now this afterlife, uh, all this is written in our mythological books. Uh, then the service providers like the pundits who help in performing the rituals. So they tell us what to donate and what to, you know, so it is so much of money making in the name of all this. So they will tell you to donate certain articles and uh, food and lots of stuff, money and even cow. Cow is very important in our philosophy. So that helps the soul in the afterlife journey to reach uh, this God Yama. And once the soul reaches with all these uh, perks that we have given there in order to help it reach there, and then Yama evaluates the karmas, good and bad deeds. And then accordingly, uh, in his abode, either he gives you very painful experiences or very pleasant. 
so heaven and hell are basically those uh, uh, are the part of abode of yama where heaven in heaven there are all uh, pleasures and on the contrary on the in the hell there are all bad things and once this fruit of karma is over and then there and then your next life is decided so based on whatever you have done in your previous life after bearing all this uh, pain or pleasures you will be given a new body it could be the human body or it could be a better life or it could be the worse life also so yama is the god kivinath <laughs> any anyone and has anything to share about uh, attempts to manipulate that in the traditions that you have studied i guess that's a no <laughs> Well, <laughs> which I, is I can... not it's not surprising but Chris was it Chris I can weigh in again with uh, oh, okay. some ideas from Egyptianism uh, Egyptian paganism um at least at certain parts of uh, Egyptian history you know it's over 5000 years so it varied um the idea was that uh you need to learn certain passwords and rituals to get through various gates successfully uh after you died to get to the afterlife that you need to be in um and you could actually be destroyed or eaten if you did them wrong um they also appeared to believe that if your pharaoh or whatever nobility you were under did those rituals correctly that they could bring you through so it wasn't so necessary for everyone to uh have that done and these rituals were also uh quite often apparently written on the bandages that people were mummified with, with as a i guess sort of a crib note or something or just a magical talisman um and then there were similar beliefs in central america outlined in a book called the popol vol um where you had to get through various a cave system with jaguars and other dangers after you died thank you eric There is another question from uh, Nick Tillman. Hi, Nick. He's another member of the Inner Symposium. Um, so he asks, what is the pagan understanding of the role of the body post-death? How is the body seen in paganism after death? Well, once again, it, um, it varies hugely obviously um it also depends on the status the body has in life and whether in fact the body is the whole person um and that is a very complicated discussion as well but i think i've already kind of touched on this in that for a lot of pagans and i know that this is an idea that reaches into into tibetan buddhism as well to some extent the body is the final thing you have that you can give as a gift um so within within buddhism i know that there is the idea with sky burial as um the the body is dana um that is given as food to the animals which is a little bit illegal here so the idea of the body being you know the green burial a lot of pagans think of it in in these sorts of terms and there's also a lot of discussion that i see about uh, cremated remains being put in a pot with a tree and i wish people would just pack this the hell in 
because it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, there is no surer way of killing a sapling than putting a whole person's cremated remains near it. Um, and I, what I will say is if that's what you want to do, scatter it around some trees, that will be helpful. Um, but again, you know, any way that you look at this, it's the idea of the body as a gift and the idea of the body as the elements returning to the earth um, from which they came. Um, there's also in, in sort of more ancient pagan traditions, there's the idea of an underworld. And this gets me back to another main area of my study, which is burial mounds and modern burial mounds and the idea of going into and under the earth and continued existence there. That's a whole different issue, but it's there. Um, the body, what I will say in funeral ritual, a lot of pagans, again, generalization, a lot of pagans are a lot less squeamish about being around a dead body than perhaps the wider population is. So you are more likely to get pagans coming into, for example, the funeral home, and spending time anointing, actually touching. I mean, obviously not at the moment, it's uh, the world's gone mad. Under normal circumstances, actually spending time maybe singing to the body or talking to the body or anointing the body with oils. So that the body as the locus of the person is sometimes in that liminal space between death and whatever the, the ultimate destination of the body is, there is perhaps more of an honoring of the body than has become normal in, in wider society. Again, generalization. Thank you, Jenny. There is also another question from uh, Joel Hydro. Um, he says, uh, first haircut is important for Hindus, shedding the undesirable that comes back from previous life. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Do other current, um, do other cultures have similar rites of passage to a new life? Any other cultures you know of uh, which have rites of passage once you enter a new life, like cutting hair or something else? I uh, don't. I, I would like to uh, clear here that cutting hair is not uh, uh, something which is uh, for done for entering the new life in Hinduism. Um, it is uh, basically the, uh, the hair is uh, the, the, the person who um, is doing, who's the performer, I mean, who is performing the cremation uh, on the diseased. So it is like um, a tribute uh, from him side. So it is that kind of connection. And it is not that the hair, uh, cutting the hair, hair is uh, done. I mean, it's something to do with the, or it, it is like connecting to, to the next life. So the person who is performing the cremation is mostly in Hinduism. Uh, the son of uh, uh, the deceased. It is like that father has to be given uh, the last, um, you can say, funeral rite. Father deserves a funeral rite from the son. That is the theory. Father also and uh, even, even everyone, the mother also. So the son who is performing this cremation uh, is, uh, is supposed to shave the head or, you know, uh, so that is a kind of purification, a cleaning, cleaning ritual more of that before doing something which is giving the last rites as an honor to the person who is dead. And when it comes to uh, this uh, uh, 
preparation of the corpse for uh, for the burning so they do the cleaning they uh, kind of um, uh, shaving is done cleaning of the body is done it's just like um, uh, cleaning in terms of giving a regard to the person who is to deceased so it is like that thank you veenat for clarifying things uh chris do you want to jump in and tell us something more about your your module and what it is that you address no, no perfect timing because i was just thinking that that question about manipulating death is something that even if it doesn't come up so obviously in some of the uh the, the world's traditions you see it in popular culture manifestations of or expressions of the afterlife you see it in film i mean that's one of the things i do with my students we look at you know we, we'll spend weeks looking at um concepts of reincarnation or we'll look at christian or jewish or islamic ideas of heaven or hell etc but we also look at popular culture and you think of a film uh, what dreams may come for example you know the vincent ward film which uh, has lots of zoroastrian or christian or you know it's, it's open to all sorts of readings but that is very big as was the um, alan rudolph film made in heaven from 1987 with these ideas that because this worldly vicissitudes this worldly hopes dreams traumas in some cases are so strong that the next life needs in some way to be short-circuited or there needs to be some manipulation to ensure that a soul that is left on earth who needs to be with the soul mate who's 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 in the next world needs to come together and and the thing that we find through looking at all of these films is this very odd sort of mishmash this very eclectic coming together of beliefs very syncretic beliefs from hinduism from christianity etc so you've got the sort of idea that in what dreams may come as an example um a character dies followed by another character they're separated because one's in heaven one's in hell so he in a sort of odyssean sense goes down to hell to bring his wife back his soulmate back to heaven but then rather than say now we're in heaven that's it what bliss what amazing sort of you know uh, culmination of this this journey what do they want to do they want to start all over again so that so it's like heaven and hell a means to an end so one of the things that we'll look at with the students with my students is this idea that many afterlife readings are kind of very reductionistic and that it's all about this worldly coming together and the starting again the, in the body the very corporeal idea of what the um of, of, of what matters to us on earth that kind of it seems more solid more durable uh, more everlasting than the idea that you just have this static life in heaven where all your troubles have have been washed away and 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 I find that a really interesting insight that the afterlife depictions are really depictions about what matters on earth and they often in the filmic depictions of course come down to love thank you chris that's that's actually really interesting yeah I, uh, we also got another question um, about Egypt. Um, so uh, Abiko asks, in Egyptian mythology, they go through trials, as you mentioned. Is this seen as a continuation of the kind of growth we experience when alive, like the hero's journey? That sounds more Indian, more like karmic rather than Egyptian. Any of you has um, any thoughts to share about it? But the uh, hero's journey is interesting. That's Campbell. 
Yeah, um, Joseph Campbell. Campbell's and um, so uh, it's just interesting because that's a wonderful structure for journeying into the underworld. And although that um, meta myth, which Star Wars, Wars was structured on, um, which I'm sure everybody here knows that, uh, it, it has this, this whole idea of going down into the world and coming back, but it's not necessarily that you died. Um, the hero returns, he has a, a death and rebirth, I suppose, sort of cycle. Um, so, so there's that, and I'm wondering how much that kind of idea of the meta-myth, which a lot of people disagree with, uh, and then there's a feminine version of it too, um, I wonder how much that shapes our thinking about what happens in the afterlife. And of course, we don't know what happens in the afterlife. And if a lot of films have been, have been based on this, I, I love the idea of looking at films, uh, Chris, and, and doing that. Depth psychology does that a lot, um, which, is, which is my area. And you know, it's an, a window into what the culture is thinking. And um, so it's, it's just, I find that fascinating. And then you have the whole you know, trope of the horror film. And what is going on in a horror film that is so gratifying to watch if you like horror films, some people can't abide them. Um, so I, I guess my thing is that I see a lot of these as still as living processes, not things that you do once you're dead to get past a password or thing like that. It's a lot of comfort. Uh, James Hillman often said that everything that we do is aimed towards that moment of death and being okay with it. Um, which is which is pretty trippy. Um, so I'm not sure that answered the question, but I just thought that the Campbell thing was important. Perhaps it adds to it. Yeah, yeah, I, thank I, you. yeah no, and I, I think of Dante as well, and the sort of the journey that the hell is a is a is a is a journey point. It's not the final destination. You, you you have to go through hell to reach paradise. And you see that, you mentioned depth psychology, you see it in Alcoholics Anonymous, you see it in, and Alice Turner wrote a really good book on the history of hell some years ago in which she sort of plays on that idea that hell is really, it's the human construction of hell rather than hell as an objective essence that matters. And you see it in poetry, you see it in film, in literature. So Dante in that sense has more to say about the afterlife than anything you'll get in, in, in many of the scriptural uh, texts of certainly, I work more closely with with Jewish and Christian scriptures and, and you find that um, ideas on the afterlife there are quite piecemeal but you go to popular culture manifestations and they're all over the place but they are very much of a hodgepodge of of different traditions but you know Campbell what you say is is, is absolutely spot on that that notion of challenge and somehow there's this thing about the I mean I was looking at it just this last week with my students why is heaven often perceived or portrayed in quite uh, metaphorical terms but hell is very bodily and is that that notion that when and you mentioned horror uh jeffrey um isn't that the thing about horror that sometimes you know the, the people on the screen are suffering so we don't have to it's vicarious suffering you can bring it back to the day of atonement you know the idea that some there has to be struggle there has to be sacrifice and and i think heaven although it's sort of i suppose the the analogy would be a, a perfect holiday when you're working really hard and life is full of challenges you can't think of anything better than going on some sort of eternal holiday but when you're actually on the holiday you kind of want something also to challenge you and you wouldn't want to be on holiday forever so it's it's that sort of playing with that idea of what it is that makes us challenged and why do we enjoy horror gangster film noir uh, I, I find those really interesting analogies why are we not always, you know do we want to live in a rom-com forever do we always want the happy endings i'm not sure we always do we kind of do but we don't deserve them per se we have to go on a long journey to find them and dante's divine comedy is a perfect encapsulation of that hero's journey 
Yeah, definitely. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, um, any of you wants to uh, step in about this, about near-death experiences, because I think it's the kind of the last topic we have to touch on <laughs> uh, before wrapping up, because so far it hasn't come up. Yeah, I mean, near-death experiences is, is, is wonderful in the sense that it gives us this uh, empirical foundation to questions about the afterlife, or does it? You know, I mean, and that's the question. It's not just airy-fairy kind of uh, speculation about what might happen after we die, but it's the evidence, inverted commas, of people who've who've told the story. And and, and that's often the underpinning for a lot of the films that, that we've already been looking at. But, but it's this sort of notion that... Um, uh, what I'm interested in, in a sort of very William Jamesian sense, is that people who've, who claim to have had a near-death experience, irrespective of the veracity or you know, whether we can prove it happened or not, it changes their lives. It's the impact that it has. Often, in some cases, people who've had a near-death experience um, won't fear death. And all they, it's not the case that people who've, you know, agnostics or atheists become believers or, or whatever. It's more the case that people become much more attuned in a positive sense to the way that the world is, it is and, and, and they want to do positive things. They want to live life to the full, very sort of Ecclesiastes based, I suppose. So near-death experiences are fascinating for what they do to the people, the experience that is had, uh, which is life-changing. And that actually it's, there's something very positive about it, that that lack of fear of death becomes an impetus to, to live life very fully. Yes, indeed. We also got a few other questions. Um, so Gan asks, um, can you comment on the idea of residual hauntings and quantum ideas of matter and energy? Any of you wants to step in? Maybe David? residual hauntings and quantum yeah, ideas of matter and energy yeah it's an interesting one um certainly in spiritualism you do get the idea that um because everything has a kind of energetic vibration to it it is possible either for people in this world who are incarnates or perhaps even people in spirit who are from the present to leave some kind of imprint on a place um and also there's the idea that you know something very psychically very traumatic happens something like a murder for example um there is a kind of psychic um impression made on that location that's sometimes how uh, hauntings and ghosts are understood thank you um nip in on that one very quickly as well um what I came across, one of the questions that was in my survey was about the sorts of experiences that people had had around ancient sites. Um, so whether they had encountered anything that they saw as out of the ordinary when visiting ancient sites. Now, this raised a number of interesting questions because quite a few of my respondents were in America where it's a whole different ball game of, you know, contested space. But from the ones in Britain, just to keep it simple, there were a lot of people that were encountering what you might call land spirits or whites. Um, but there were also a lot of people encountering what they saw as the ancestral dead. So whether you would actually call this ghosts or whether you would call it something else, I don't know. But it was certainly quite common for people 
either to have an experience where they saw the site being built and felt that they were witnessing a different time or that they were actually in some way in communication with the ancestral dead who had a message. So um, one really spectacular um, event that um, I was told about, the dead had a message and the message was that we in the modern world are out of connection with the dead. And the way that the world is supposed to operate is that there is a reciprocal relationship between the living and the dead in which both support each other. And that this is cut, this is broken, and that this is responsible for some of the issues that we're facing in the world today. So from that point of view, you know, it, it goes beyond, I suppose, what you would think of as a normal haunting. But these sorts of experiences appear to be not at all uncommon with pagans that are at stone circles or at ancient burial sites or something like that. Mm. Thank you, Jenny. Speaking of paganism, there is another question from Nick, which is quite interesting. Um, he says that he's noticed in many African death traditions that the ceremony in part reaffirms social obligations of the living. Do other pagan traditions use death to reaffirm obligations for the living? I guess it also depends on what do we mean by pagan, because um, I guess, yeah, that can be debatable, but even certain shamanistic traditions or Hindu traditions may fall under the umbrella. Any of you wants to take this question? I think to some extent, the um, what we have here is the disconnect that we've seen all the way through this conversation between uh, traditional societies and post-industrial societies. Um, where the, the element of duty um, seems to be missing very often in the West uh, and the idea of obligation seems to be missing. We, I, I think what has possibly happened is that we have just had things too good for too long and we, we are not really keen on this idea of having to do things. The, the closest I can... Um, the closest I can come is not in terms of what happens when somebody dies, but um, rituals that take place around Samhain, very often um, there is an attempt to re-establish familial or friendly connections with the dead. So offerings might be made on altars and it might be, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about a particular recently deceased ancestor, it might be you might like their favourite cigar or you might leave some of their favourite food. So uh, maintaining relationships, and um, this is one of my things in terms of grief theory, I argue that in, in terms of paganism, continuing bonds specifically goes backwards as well as forwards. Um, but that is about as close as I can get. I think, you know, something that, that Georgia said earlier about Sicily and the Day of the Dead in Sicily, um, I think that happens far more obviously and far more, you know, it's far more embedded in the wider culture than it is here. But the, the yeah. short answer is no, but there probably should be. Yeah, Giorgio, do you want to add anything to that? <laughs> yes, uh, I had two things. One is from an uh, indigenous point of view. Again, the one that I work with is this thing that you can't die without the community. 
And the funeral is the most expensive ritual you can organize. So each member has to do something. And the idea is that everybody bringing something. So once you're going to die, the community is going to be there to help you and your family organize a funeral. So it's always like, I give you something, so I'm going to have back something. Uh, among living people, I also with the dead. And then think about what Jenny was saying about Sicily, because everybody talk about Mexico and they have the dead in, in Mexico, but also in Sicily and other parts of Southern Italy, we have similar tradition. We have Spain in common. And usually what we do in Sicily is that on the 2nd of November, the dead bring gifts slash toys to the kids. So you have these children waking up on the 2nd of November and finding gifts from the dead like grandparents. And the thing is, you keep continuing, like you keep this connection with the, with the communities in the afterlife. So again, people don't actually die until you allow them to die. You just change status and shape. So you take care of them during the year, like you go washing and cleaning the, the grave and all this kind of stuff, you pray. When it's change, you get gift, you get numbers for the lottery, like Angela knows this. In Italy, it is all this culture. Like, yeah, especially in Naples, we do have. <laughs> but yeah. it's very strong. You have people coming to you in dreams again, to give you the number of the lottery. In exchange, you have to pray for them. Uh, the relationship never ends until like you actually want to end it. Naples yeah. is incredible. Yeah, in Naples we have like a, a huge tradition <laughs> related to that. <laughs> and dreams and how to interpret dreams to all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, um, we have one last question and then we are going to end the, the live stream. But if there is any of your questions which we were not able to address and tackle here during the live stream please leave them in the comment section and i will be replying to them all i promise uh, so the last question is from andrew and it is how common are negative near-death experiences uh, for example going to hell any of you oh i think uh we're talking about five percent so very small are, are negative. And, and that's really interesting because, you know, the, it's the same kind of figure as I understand it, irrespective of whether somebody is a theist or an atheist. You know, it doesn't sort of follow that um, people necessarily get a negative experience based on whether they don't have a belief in an afterlife uh, prior to the to, to the episode. So uh, there are a few. There was a really useful book by oh uh dell the name will come to me in the minute but it was something that the film flatliners seemed to be um very much sort of uh, predicated around where there are negative near-death experiences but generally they are positive 95 percent of them tend to be uh, on balance far more positive than negative of the negative ones that i've come across or that i've read about i think they tend to be slightly more common where the near-death experience is the result of somebody that has attempted to take their own life. Um, that's, that's just 
something that was sort of in passing in a, in a book that I was reading about it. And I, I wonder, there was some question about whether this, you know, how the psychology of the person feeds into this. Oh, that's fascinating. But yeah, I guess on this <laughs> light note, we can <laughs> we can end our live stream after live 10K party. Very long title. I hope you all had fun. And I really want to thank all the people who joined here for the panel, all my patrons and all uh, the academics and Chanel. And um, of course, uh, any of you who um, have been watching the live stream and all those that will be watching it later on. So yeah, I'm gonna end as usual, <laughs> saying that if you like this video, smash the like button, subscribe to the channel, activate the notification bell so that you will never miss a new video that I upload, which, because obviously you don't want to. Leave a comment because I really want to know what you think about it. And as always, stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now and bye for <laughs> from all of my guests. <laughs>